I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 3rd, 2020. Coming up, we'll hear how off-trail winter sports can hurt wildlife. How animals are being displaced within their home ranges. And we'll join Colorado archaeologist John Hoffaker as he teams up with local volunteers to make an ice age campfire. Their alternative fuel clearly was bone because bone ash shows up in, in many of the archaeological sites that I have worked at. Not long ago, backcountry skiing was a fairly niche sport, but today, earning your turns is increasingly popular. Despite the perception that backcountry skiing is eco-friendly, researchers warned that the growing number of people in the wilderness could have a devastating impact on winter wildlife. Margaret Hederman reports. It's a windswept and sunny afternoon at a popular trailhead in Rocky Mountain National Park. Skiers and snowboarders clomp across the busy parking lot on their way to and from a backcountry ski area. Crowded trailheads like this are becoming more common throughout Colorado as backcountry snow sports gain in popularity. But as more people escape the lift line in search of untracked powder, biologists are racing to understand the impact on wildlife. The thing about the backcountry recreation, it's historically been kind of out of sight, out of mind. That's Kim Heinemeyer a conservation biologist and science director with Round River Conservation Studies in Bozeman, Montana. There's been very poor monitoring of backcountry winter recreation, whether it's motorized or non-motorized, and very little, we have very little understanding of its extent or its impacts on winter wildlife. Between 2010 and 2015, Heinemeyer, along with scientists from the Rocky Mountain Research Station, monitored wolverine populations in the northern Rockies. Although wolverines are roughly the size of a corgi, they're known to be particularly daring, sometimes preying on animals as big as a moose. Despite their oversized personality, Heinemeyer says wolverines are highly sensitive to both motorized recreation like snowmobiles and non-motorized sports like backcountry skiing. The wolverines that we had collared would avoid those areas if they were recreated. So animals are being displaced within their home ranges. The impact of outdoor recreation on wildlife is a growing field of study. In Vail, Colorado, researchers have documented a staggering decline in elk populations over the last decade, and many believe it's due to an increase in both land development and a growing number of outdoor recreation users in the backcountry. Researchers are also studying the impacts of backcountry skiing and snowmobiling on Canada lynx and bighorn sheep in the Rocky Mountains. You know, wildlife have to work a lot harder to survive in winter. Says Faith Overall with the Leave No Trace Center for Outdoor Ethics. So our kind of, you know, general Leave No Trace tips around wildlife become even more important during winter. Of course, most backcountry skiers, and I'm speaking for myself here, don't go skiing with the intent of bothering wildlife. However, sometimes our very presence can affect their ability to make it through the winter. That's why land and wildlife managers have a variety of techniques they use to mitigate the impact of winter recreation on animals, including seasonal closures. 
In southwest Colorado, the Bureau of Land Management closes several popular trail systems near the town of Durango between December and mid-April. The areas that we close for big game, they're lower elevation, south-facing slopes, a lot of them, and elk and mule deer kind of migrate down to those areas in the winter to get away from the areas with deep snow where people would be backcountry skiing and where people would be using snowmobiles. Nathaniel West is a wildlife biologist with the BLM. He says that because these areas are often snow-free, they attract mountain bikers and hikers, even in winter. And that's a problem. And so they go out there, and especially, you know, people hiking with their dogs, dogs off the leash. They go out and, you know, and they chase the wildlife. You know, they get startled. And so every ounce of energy that they can save in the winter is good. They're just They're not even trying to maintain. They're just trying to get through the winter. So if it's sounding like a lose-lose scenario for outdoor enthusiasts, stop. Don't throw your skis and mountain bikes on Craigslist. Wildlife biologists like Nathaniel West and Kim Heinemeyer still encourage people to get outside. We want people enjoying our wilderness because they're our strongest advocates for maintaining that wilderness. Heinemeyer says the biggest action backcountry skiers can take is reducing the size of their recreation footprint. Sticking to areas that are already recreated rather than trying to find that untracked snow and going deeper and deeper and creating a larger and larger footprint of winter recreation. That's the worst thing you can probably do from a Wolverine perspective. While that might not make the best Warren Miller film, it will help protect wildlife already under pressure from population growth and climate change. Thanks to Margaret Hederman for that report. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. When we come back, we'll share a story about Ice Age bone fires. Stay tuned. I'm Shelley Schlender. Today we'll take a look at what it's like to make a campfire. And not just any campfire. The origins for this one go back over 20,000 years ago, when Ice Age people lived in some of the coldest regions of what we now call northern Russia. Places like that. Even today, winter temperatures in that region can get colder than minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. That's minus 70 degrees. In just a little while, we're going to join a team of volunteers from the Boulder area who are going to try and make a campfire that's similar to what Ice Age hunters used 20,000 years ago. But to begin this story accurately, we'll start at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. We're a few basements down below the regular exhibits. We're in the brightly lit collections rooms. You can hear a school group having a tour. Meanwhile, museum staff are opening a long, deep bin filled with big bones. The staff are handing a bone to a Colorado archaeologist. The bone is big, about the size of a wood log. The archaeologist uses both hands to hold the bone. The bone is from the southwest U.S. It's a leg bone from a bison. Uh, This is a bison metacarpal, or it's like a lower leg bone. This bison bone is not bone white. It's stained the color of tea, 
probably because it's over 10,000 years old. And that's not all. Some of these ancient bison bones show evidence of cut marks. Femur? Yeah, there's a femur. With, it may be the, the very one I'm thinking of. It's got like this big, he's got a big gouge mark in it. It's like it was cut with some kind of a big scraping tool or something. This means 10,000 years ago, these bison had been hunted. Scientists used to believe that humans only arrived in North America two, 3,000 years ago. The fact that gouge marks are in a 10,000-year-old bone changed our understanding of when people came to the southwestern U.S. The archaeologist who's holding this leg bone says that bones also offer clues about 20,000 years ago. Let's hear more from the man holding this ancient bison bone. He's archaeologist John Hoffaker. My name is John Hoffaker. I'm research faculty at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm an archaeologist and a paleoanthropologist, and I research Ice Age sites where people used bone fuel very heavily. It's worth repeating. At the Ice Age sites Hoffaker studies in cold places like northern Russia 20,000 years ago, people made campfires by burning bone. Here's Hoffaker explaining why. 20,000 years ago, there were a lot of large animals with big bones. Animals that live off grasses, like steppe bison and woolly mammoth. Wood was extremely scarce. There may have been, at the most, in some of these places, uh, woody shrubs, like willow and dwarf birch. And so people made use of alternative fuels, other than wood. They had to find another, an alternative type of fuel. Their alternative fuel clearly was bone, because bone ash shows up in, in many of the archaeological sites that I have worked at. During the Ice Age, the burning of bone was commonplace, but few people know how to do that today. Those scientists who've tried often warned that it's an awful ordeal. It's hard to get a bone fire hot enough to burn. Some people report that it smells horrific, like when you're at the dentist and your tooth is getting drilled and you smell that hot smell of burning protein. But Ice Age people probably benefited from a fire, even if it was smelly. A campfire would help them stay warm. It would help keep hungry predators away. It would give them light. So even though a bone fire might not be easy to make, and it might smell terrible, John Hoffaker wants to make a bone fire. With our experimental bone fire, you know, we're trying to get a better feel for how difficult is it to do it when you're actually doing it yourself rather than just simply thinking about a description of bone ash in an archaeological report or a book. That's the wrong story. Six volunteers are curious about bone fire. Now they're standing with Hoffaker in a snow-covered corner of a cow pasture donated for the bone fire experiment. My name is Josh Steinzik. We're in northeast Boulder County, one of my grass fields here, and we're trying to start a fire out of bones. <laughs> they're standing in winter jackets and boots. The sound you're hearing is Henry Ballard using his homemade version of a Paleolithic bow drill. Well, the really embarrassing thing would be if I started burning that. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's made of sticks and yarn from his wife, Lynn. Lynn likes to knit, which explains the yarn on the bow drill. Henry bows the fire drill back and forth, sort of like someone might play a violin. The fire drill twirls a stick that's pressing against a handful of dry leaves and grass. Yeah. He once feels hot stick, 
got friction. The tinder's getting hot. It's making smoke. Here we go. Look at that. And there's actually smoke coming from just a few minutes of the bowing of those sticks. That's the voice of Amber O'Hearn. She's got a special interest in the Ice Age because she basically eats an Ice Age human's diet, meaning she eats no plants, only meat, meat fat, organ meats. She says this style of eating helps her health. She's organizing a carnivore conference for later this spring, which will include medical doctors and scientists talking about a no-plant diet. She's here in the snow-covered field because she's curious about a lot of things Paleolithic, including how Ice Age people started a fire. Meanwhile, Henry's still trying to get the fire drill right. The fire drill slips. The smoke fades. Henry shrugs. I am not dreaming that it's going to happen. <laughs> to start the Ice Age campfire, archaeologist John Hoffaker cheats a little. Oh, I'm just trying to get this going here. Do you hear that click sound? Rancher Josh Steinzik explains. We tried a bow drill. That's a lot of work. So we went to our methods with a Bic lighter. We got fire. It's starting to catch. Volunteers add sticks. Orange flames grow bright. Amber O'Hearn, the modern-day carnivore, says that so far this campfire smells pretty good. It smells like coziness in the wintertime. I haven't been around a fire outside <laughs> um, in the wintertime. I'm not sure if I've ever done that. It's common to have bonfires in the summertime, in the evenings, and it's nice to have a fireplace in the wintertime inside, but this is a different experience. The big challenge here is, once we get this going, is to get it hot enough to, to ignite the bone. Hoffaker says that making a bone fire will be difficult. You have to get temperatures up uh, more than 100 degrees centigrade higher than you do when you're igniting a bunch of wood. Let's pause here just to clarify something. To burn bone, the fire will need to be 100 degrees centigrade higher overall than the temperature needed for igniting wood. For those of you who prefer Fahrenheit, Hoffaker has just said that a bone fire only ignites when it's 200 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than what's needed to simply ignite wood. To ignite a bone fire overall, it means a temperature approaching 700 degrees Fahrenheit. To raise a campfire's temperature, volunteers toss in not big wood logs. They stick to dinky branches and twigs. This simulates the twiggy shrubs used by Ice Age hunters. Where we find all this evidence of the burning of bones in places like central Russia or in Alaska, we always find, almost always find, little traces of wood charcoal. And very often, when we identify the charcoal, we find that it's these woody shrubs. The sticks have been burning half an hour when Hoffaker adds the rib cage of a deer. Okay, so I'm going to try a rib cage here. The ribs sizzle. The flames go high. Watching the bonfire is Dustin Goodyou. Goodyou butchers deer for hunters. So this is a deer carcass that was cut up just a few hours ago over to Rappo Meat Company in Lafayette. So it looks like it's got quite a bit of fat on it, which means the animal ate well. And uh, the sizzling sound is mostly that fat burning off, which is appearing to be very flammable. The fat burns off the rib cage hot and fast. Orange flames leap against a dusky blue twilight sky. See if we can reach the ignition temperature of bone, which is high. It's over 350 degrees centigrade. 
it's much higher than wood, so it looks like maybe we're getting there. I could tell you it's making me hungry right now. Yes. <laughs> I could go for a rib chop right now. Well, I was just going to throw another rib cage on here. Since we're having good luck with ribs today. But while archaeologist John Hoppaker's team has been burning bone now, after all, they're burning the rib cage of a deer, this is not really a test yet of burning bones the way hunters did 20,000 years ago. That's because right now it's the grease on the outside of the rib cage that's been burning. And also the wood. This fire is mostly being maintained by adding sticks, a lot of sticks. The denser bones burn more slowly, so they last longer. I want to, we want to get the, you know, the bone itself burning. That's where we'll get that smell, which I, we still aren't getting. You know, the class, you know when you go to the dentist and you're, the dentist is drilling and the drill gets really hot? It's this really kind of bad smell. Oh, I imagine the bone is going to smell awful. Because <laughs> you always hear things like, oh, the smell of burning hair, things like that. But maybe it'll actually smell good. I'm interested to find out. Hoffaker's team adds a deer leg bone, which has thick bone encasing a very fatty marrow. The fat is in the middle, in the marrow. And when this leg bone gets added, nothing happens to the fire. They add more leg bones. The flames turn to smoke and soon are in danger of going out. Josh Steinsick's son is here. He says this part is not very pleasant. Smoke is like kind of like really hot and it, it does not feel good when it gets in your eyes. There's signs that things are falling apart in places. Henry Ballard says that between the deer legs on the fire and the cold, damp weather, the campfire is being smothered. So the wood is wet. And you have to dry the wood out before the wood will start to burn. We're going to get it. All this while, Lynn Ballard has been constantly tending the fire with her husband, Henry, with the archaeologist, John Hoffaker, with rancher, Josh Stanzik, with deer butcher, Dustin Goodyear. We can make fire. <laughs> yes. These volunteers are accustomed to camping in the woods. They know campfires. Right now, they're constantly intervening, mostly without any words between them, just lots of grabbing of sticks and adding them into strategic places in the fire and finding places to breathe onto the fire to keep it going. It's constant attendance. And this is just for fun. At any time, if any of us got cold, we could just go over to our cars, turn them on, and start getting warm in there. It would be different trying to get a fire started on a night when it's 70 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Minus 70 degrees. That's something Ice Age humans had to face, and sometimes perhaps it was hard like this. Here at this modern attempt at a bone fire, adding all that wood is working. The bills of smoke start to settle into a stream. The flames grow stronger. Lynn Ballard finally looks up from tending the fire. Well, we got the fire started up again. Well, <laughs> plenty of wood here. Archaeologist John Hoppaker is looking disappointed. So we're feeding it here. He's trying to get the fire's temperature higher. We're, we're, we're feeding it uh, like mad. Stars twinkle in the sky. The fire is mostly sticks being added like mad. Goodyear lifts a leg bone out of the fire and shows that while it's not really burning, it might be cooking. So if we crack this open, we can get a fair amount of marrow out of this. Good use swings a mallet and cracks the bone. He roasts the marrow bone some more, then gives everyone a taste, including archaeologist John Hoffaker. Bone marrow is very tasty. It's 
filled with fat and grease. It's good stuff, especially if you live in a cold place. But even though Hoffiger is upbeat about the bone marrow, he's not happy with how much wood it's taking. He's been at archaeological sites dating back 20,000 years. He's read the literature and he knows this is not a bone fire yet. I mean, we have a nice fire going here, but it's, you know, it's, mo- <laughs> it's mostly the wood. I think we're burning relatively little of the bone here. You know, we're, we're mostly, we're, we're burning off the grease and the fat, and um, much of the bone is, is, um, is not burning here. I think it's maybe because the fire isn't quite hot enough. But at least it's hot enough to grill another common food for Ice Age humans, which was fatty meat. One of the volunteers here tonight is a friend of modern carnivore Amber O'Hearn. I'm Siobhan Huggins. I independently research cholesterol, the immune system, and metabolic syndrome. Yeah, so we were just talking about how we were going to eat these beautiful steaks and pork chops, and we have no plates because that's not very Paleolithic. There's something supremely satisfying about eating meat with your hands. It's just freshly cooked. How is it? Good. Excellent. Shobin Huggins asked archaeologist John Hoffaker what he thinks about this effort to make a Paleolithic bone fire. Do you feel you've learned anything yeah. from doing this? Uh, well, I, I think I, I had a suspicion, you know, based on you know what I read, and um, that it was that it was you know it was going to be a challenge to uh, to manage this fire to, to you know to burn bone for several reasons, and so I guess. You know, I'm not surprised that that turned out to be the case. It is a disappointment. For thousands of years, in the coldest part of the Ice Age, these bone fires were the way that people stayed warm, that they scared away predators, and they cooked their food. Evidence of bone fires have appeared on hills, in valleys, and they've appeared in the center of incredible structures called mammoth bone huts. John Hoffaker has just co-authored a paper that appears in the journal Antiquity about one of these recently discovered huts. These are huts made 20,000 years ago from hundreds of mammoth bones. When modern scientists fit the bones together, they find the mammoth bones make a domed structure that probably Ice Age humans covered with animal heights to keep in warmth. The bone fire was at the center of these mammoth bone huts. Ancient humans made bone fires. Today, We modern humans, we can't do it. Even though it's been disappointing that the team hasn't made a bonfire, Hoffaker says there's a magic to any campfire at night, and it must have been even more special for Ice Age people. We now know that people had invaded the Arctic at least as early as 32,000 years ago. We have, these are the first people who were living in a place which, for many months out of the year, was completely dark. There was no sunlight whatsoever. Fire was the only light they had. If you're out camping and it gets dark, it's nice to have a fire to sit around. It's not only contributes heat, but it contributes light. Then there's something about the fire. It seems somehow quieter. There's less smoke. The flames have settled into a lemon yellow. They're more clear now, but yet they're hot. Yeah, this is lasting way longer than a 
wood fire. It is. It's amazing. So I've never seen a fire last this long. To a certain heat, they, they really do. They're like coal. We throw, we throw a chunk of pine on there, and it goes, it's all gone. Yeah, the thing is, we've hardly fed this at all for like the last, what, 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's amazing. We, I threw one bone on there, and you can get going for a while, but um, you know, this has been burning away very nicely here for some time. I think this is a majority of the fires going off of the animal fats and the marrows that are dripping through there. I think most of the wood's been consumed at this point. The team observes that the heated marrow seems to drip out gradually, igniting only when it's exposed to air. It's almost like an oil lamp. And it doesn't smell awful, like drilled teeth at a dentist. Shobin Huggins says it's got a different smell. The smell is a bit like a clean wax candle sort of smell. It's very refreshing almost. It's definitely lasted longer than most woods. Especially in Colorado, the, the aspen and the pine would burn a lot faster than this. Josh Steinzik wears leather ranching gloves. With his hands protected in this way, he reaches into the edge of the fire and picks up a piece of charcoal. Only, this is not wood charcoal. It's what's left of a bone, a deer leg bone. It crumbles in his hand. The bone gets brittle. Once it gets going, the bone burns quite well for quite a while. Archaeologist John Hoffaker finally looks content. Uh, Some of the bone is burning, yes. He watches the fire. As we were saying, I mean, out here in the darkness here, it's cold, there's snow in the ground, and the fire is kind of the center of our universe here. Archaeologist John Hoffaker plans to try more bone fires to better understand the lives of Ice Age humans who lived in cold, dry places 20,000 years ago. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by me, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Edie Hill's album, Clay Jug. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.